Good morning, and the conversation continues here on 94 WIP as we ease on into WIP Super Bowl Sunday, WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon, and we're going to get right to work here on WIP Sunday as I welcome back a frequent guest. I'm pleased to welcome Martin Yeat. He's out with a new book, a reissue of an old book, the 2018 Knock'em Day the Ultimate Job Search Guide. Good morning, Martin Yate. Good morning, Peter. Good to hear your voice. We can't be missing all this time from work, you know. No, we can't. <laughs> Although people are going to be missing time from work for recovering from the Super Bowl, but that's another discussion. Yeah. All right. I'm glad you're better. Thank you. Martin, um, is 2018 February a good time to start searching for a job? Oh, yes. The, uh, the, the, the first four or five months of the year are the best. And that's because all the new hiring budgets that were agreed on last September open up in January. It takes two weeks to get over their hangovers and everyone to get back in the saddle. But by the second or third week in January, it's kicking off. And from now, uh, if, if there's jobs available, they're available in the next few months. Uh, hiring is good, it'll continue throughout the year, but to get moving now, it's a really smart thing. Especially if you have a job now and you change jobs now, you've just had a raise, you're just going to get another one, you might get a third come uh, the end of this year. <laughs> good time to move. Absolutely. All right. What do you see as being the growth industries? Where should we be looking? There's one word. You know, if this was the 60s, <laughs> it would be plastics. Today, it's robotics. Um, there's uh, uh, Forrester Research, which is the organization that comments on the impact of technology on society, released a report this year. And, and by the way, Forrester Research is when they publish something, it's like it's been carved in stone and handed down from the mountain. <laughs> Right? Uh, they estimate that by 2027, 16% of all U.S. jobs in all professions at all levels will have been replaced by artificial intelligence and robotics. Good news is they're going to create 9% more jobs. And where do you think those are going to be, Peter? <laughs> I have no idea. Robotics. Okay. <laughs> From designing and maintaining them, polishing them. So if you want a sweet spot, that's, and there's very few sweet spots, uh, and, uh, and you have some math skills, artificial intelligence is the direction to be headed. But if you don't have math skills, I mean, I'm thinking about all those people who graduate high school, or don't even graduate high school, but graduate high school and stop. What are they to do? So, you know, these are, this is a class of class. It's not the right way. It's a group of people that have been woefully ignored over the years. If you're not going to college, we're not going to bother with you, is basically the thinking of high schools. And, and there's many people who can't go to college when it's not a matter of their brain capacity. There are many other circumstances. So what, has, what, what these people have been restricted to is local jobs. Now, let's look at what are the local jobs. Well, my hairdresser say, drives just as nice a car as I do. My plumber goes on the same cruises I go to. So those c 
what we would call professional trades, plumbers, carpenters, electricians, all the uh, hairdressers, all these input, what they used to call in-person server jobs. You've got to be there to get the service. Those jobs, if you treat the start of your career as an apprenticeship, and in old Europe, you used to get a job and you'd serve a seven-year apprenticeship, and then you would be deemed to be good at your job. You work for a company for a while, and then if you watch how companies actually function, you'll be able to open your own company, and then you're bringing money in your own front door, whereas that's the only financial responsibility. You never have to go up a high-rise salt mine in an elevator, and you get at the end of the day, you make the same amount of money as the guys who work in the offices in the suits. Because they get laid off in their 50s, so you can wipe out all that extra money they earned. Plumbers, carpenters, mechanics keep working well into their 50s and 60s. They work as long as you like, and you can take the job wherever you like. I mean, when your plumbing goes, it doesn't matter what it costs, does it, Peter? No, you got to get it fixed. <laughs> yeah, I blew a tire on I-95. It didn't cost me the 12 hours. It didn't matter that 12 hours later I'd spent $250 apart from the tire. I just had to get it done. I couldn't spend my life on the side of I-95. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So the, the, these jobs have real worth. They've been overlooked over the last 40 years, um, and uh, it's time they came back. What can we expect if we get a job, whether it's a high school-related job or a advanced degree job? in terms of benefits? Uh, that there isn't a clear answer to that, Peter. It depends on the company. Now, I, I will say this. There are certain companies that are famous for their benefits. Oh, my gosh, I want to work for Google, Mr. Solomon. They have beanbag chairs, and they have a Starbucks, and they do your cleaning for you, and we have restaurants. Guess what, guys? That's because they don't want you ever to go home and have a life, right? So in examples of extremely good benefits, you've got to think, why are they doing this? They want your blood, sweat, and tears. Uh, Otherwise, we have a shift in most instances away from full-time employment to contract employment. It's happening fairly steadily but gradually, and then your benefits are going to be next to zero. Otherwise, it depends entirely on the company. But what are you to do if you need health insurance? Buy it yourself? Uh, I'm, I'm not qualified to answer the question. I will say this, though. When you go to a job interview, and, and an important part of that decision are the benefits, because they account for about a third of an employment package, don't ask about them until there's an offer on the table. Most people go to job interviews to decide if they want the job. That's half, what half their mind is dealing with. And I'm telling you this, if, you, if, if, you, if you're listening to us this morning and you look at all the skills you've got, I'm going to tell you the two most important skills to survive a long career and your two weakest skills. And guess what? They're both the same. 
the most important skills, your ability to get job interviews, and two, to turn them into job offers, because that's what puts food on your table and keeps a roof over your head. Your weakest skills, how to get job interviews and how to get job offers, because you've got less experience of doing that anymore. So you go to a job interview with a single intent of getting a job offer. Improve that skill. Then you can ask about the bennies. Okay. Another question. Age discrimination. The older you get, the less likely you are to get a job interview. True or false? Uh, uh, again, there's a lot of area. On the whole, I would say true. Uh, there are a lot of things you can mitigate age discrimination in getting an interview in the way the resume is written. Like, we don't take mine back to 1847, right? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there is a rule now that because of technology, you go back more than 10 or 15 years, and whatever you're doing is pretty much irrelevant because we don't do it that way anymore. Uh, the, the other thing is if you go to a job interview and you feel that age discrimination is happening, <laughs> guess what? It is. So you can either stick your head in the sand like an ostrich and hope that it isn't, or you can do something about it. And by looking at your age and seeing the pluses it can bring to a company uh, can make a big difference. Can I give you an example? Please. Um, most companies, yeah, well, com all, no companies are allowed to ask about age. But Peter, if you and I met at a barbecue, right, uh, I guarantee you in the first few mi minutes it would be, oh, where are you from? Illegal question. Um, how long you lived here? What church do you go to? Illegal question. You married? Illegal question. Kids? Illegal question. How old are you? Illegal question. <laughs> right? But it's Peter showing interest in Martin and Martin showing interest in Peter. Right. So, so if you get an illegal question asked at a job interview, you can take offense and say, that's illegal, you can't ask. But you're not going to get the job offer, and that's why we're there. Or you can say, you know what, I'm doing really well, and Mr. Solomon is just interested in me as a person, just as if he met me at a barbecue. Now, when we're in the interview, if you don't get the opportunity to address age before, you get the opportunity when Peter Solomon says, well, do you have any questions? That's the signal that the interview is over. This is time for your last statement. And I would come back and I would say, well, I have a lot of questions, Mr. Solomon. Very impressed with the organization. It's a job I just love. But if I was sitting at your side of the desk, I'd be looking at me and I'd be saying, he's 10 years older than everyone else here. Has he got the energy to keep up? Would he be able to get on with him? Is he manageable? Is he any good? Well, let me tell you this. I have 15 years' experience doing exactly the job you're going to fill. And, yeah, I'm probably older than the other candidates, but uh, uh, are all your clients that age? Or do you, uh, you have younger and older clients? I might give some insight for that. Besides, with all that experience, I've made a lot of my mistakes on someone else's payroll. And when bad things happen, which they do in the best-run departments, I've been there and done that, and I will be a reliable right-hand man 
I will stand at your back in all things. And if you study the stats, younger people change jobs much more frequently than older people. I'm reliable. I'm here for the long term. Okay. Now, if you, it, there's so many things you can say. But uh, uh, if you come back with that, that thing about bad things happen in the best-run departments, that you've had, that you've been through this and you can be a calming and cohesive influence is a big plus to any manager. Oh, my gosh, yeah, that would be useful to have. Question then, if you've got gray hair, time to go out and get a bottle of Miss Clairol? No, don't do it yourself. I can't remember the guy. He used to have that late-night talk show, big, heavy glasses, very famous. Uh, heavy glasses, skinny dude, married a lot of times. Uh, he, he was clearly in his late 70s, early 80s, and he had jet black hair. He looked absurd. As we grow older, our skin tone changes as well. So if you were a carrot-top redhead in your 20s, don't go back to being a carrot-topped redhead. You don't get the color out of a bottle because that's one solid color and it doesn't look good. This is your career. Go to a hairdresser and get your hair highlighted where you can weave in some softer version of your old color with all that blasted gray that's growing in. It may sound a bit weird to some of you, but guys, it works. And you're listening to Con WIP Sunday here on 94 <laughs> WIP. Got a little confused there, Martin. You've, uh, only, you've only been on the station, what, is it six months now? <laughs> more like 30-some years, but that's another yeah. discussion. All right. And we're talking with Martin Yates, job employment counselor extraordinaire, his new book, his book about finding the right job, the right job. Out of, it's Martin Yates' book. The Ultimate Job Search Guide. My name's Peter Solomon. Martin, I need you to stay with me. i got to run a few commercials. We'll be back Great. in just a bit. And I'm back with job search expert extraordinaire, Martin Yate. His new book, a revamping of the old book, The 2018 Ultimate Job Search Guide. Knock them dead. All right, Martin. What's the biggest mistake people make in job searching? Thinking they know it all. Um, allow me to make a comment, Peter. Um, it is in 2018 is not on the book. It is now called The Ultimate Job Search Guide, and it's one of the many knock em dead books. Okay. Um, the biggest mistake everyone makes is thinking they know how it's done, especially people who haven't done a job search in the last few years. Uh, and it's changed. All recruitment has moved online, <clears throat> so all job search has moved online. And the second mistake they make is uh, we used to look in the newspapers, and if there wasn't a job in the newspaper, we said, oh, no, no work this week. Um, <clears throat> now we go to uh, the job sites, and that's pretty much looking at the Help Wanted ads. The problem is people are getting their career guidance information from 500-word blogs. And you don't know who they're written by. I've been in career management my whole life. And it's not that my particular profession has a low barrier of entry, Peter. It has no barrier of entry. 
you could hang out a shingle today with a website and say you're a resume writer and you'd get business. It's it's that bad. So uh, who's writing those articles, whose advice you're, you're getting? 500 words ain't enough anyway when it's about making a success of your life. Um, they're people who are touting for business. Uh, and you simply can't gather the right information that way. We've had a resume and coaching business for 25 years, and I can't tell you the amount of people who come to me is saying, I'm just so confused. There's so much information out there, and it all contradicts each other. So getting a consistent and proven source of information and having a plan. You're going to be you're somewhere in the middle of a 50-year work life. Statistically, you're going to change jobs about every four years, not always on your choice. You know, learning how to get interviews, learning how to turn them into offers, planning changes on your timetable, you know, learning how to make your life a success that's what we should be doing, and it's the big mistake that everyone listening this morning is saying, oh, my God, you're so right. I should be doing more of that. And we should. It almost sounds like there should be a course, whether it's high school or college, how to find a job. Peter, you are absolutely right, and our system is broken. The education, uh, career education uh, in the schools – uh, and at the state level is abysmal. If you go to a state-run university, on average, there's one career per services person for every 3,000 students. If you go to a, a, an Ivy League school, it's much better, as you would hope. Um, there's one career counselor for every eight or 900 students. So no one's getting any advice on what is dribbling down is dribbling down from those rules established in the last two generations, our parents and grandparents. And that world doesn't exist anymore. Well, let me ask you a question because we talked about, you just mentioned universities. And there's some parents out there who are going to be sending their kids off to college in the fall. <clears throat> do you let your child yeah. pursue their bliss in college or do you tell them pursue a major that's going to lead to a job? Because it's not necessarily um, the same thing. Yeah, no, 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 you make a very good point. I would say this. When you take the kids around the colleges, they take you through those double cherry wood doors into admissions. It's the sales office, guys. They're trying to get tens of thousands of dollars off you. They'll say anything they want. <clears throat> what you are, excuse me, <clears throat> what you are never shown where you are never taken is the career services office. The people who get your kid a job coming out the other end after spending all that money. And you can't find out where it is. It's down the basement behind the boiler and you knock three times on a tin door. They're completely overlooked. So that we are, and what advice is available and is given is the advice that was used by our parents and our grandparents when a different set of rules applied. The advice in our schools from middle school on up through postgraduate programs um, is simply not adequate in preparing people for the world of work. And the system is broken. 
And we have to change the way we introduce this into the schools and how it's taught in the schools. I mean, we teach math. It's an essential skill, right? Right. We teach English. It's an essential skill. Isn't knowing how to put food on your table and keep the rain off your head an important skill? Absolutely. It's the result of all this math and history and geography and French and all the other stuff we do. This is what we do with it. And we're still caught in our system. You know, the most ideal job in life is to be a dean at a university. We meet at 11 for sherry. We have a two-hour lunch. You know, it's, um, we see the great art and the artists and creativity in the world. We deal with civilized people in a wonderful environment, and we have enormous social respect. They have no idea whatsoever of what the university should be doing. And all those tenured professors are academics who love learning for the sake of it, and they still are saying, you come to university to learn. You pursue knowledge for the love of knowledge. And it doesn't matter what you say to them, because they don't care about the customers, what the customer wants. Now, in the commercial world, if you didn't listen to what the customers want, what would happen to Solomon International? I'd be in bankruptcy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I'm sorry, I have a bit of a high horse about this. I think it's dreadful. The, the, the situation is dreadful. Our whole system needs overhaul. All right. One thing I want to make sure we get into, because we're almost out of time, um, the Me Too movement. You go apply for a job, and you feel something is not right, whether it's an overt gesture or whether someone is focusing their eyes on the wrong part of your body. How do you react? We go back to where we started at the beginning of the interview. You are there to get a job offer. It doesn't, ma it doesn't matter if they throw armadillos at you. You're there for one reason only, to get a job offer. Now, whenever something bad happens to us in life, it's very easy uh, to say, you're a bad person for doing that to me. We also have to be responsible, men and women, for the face we present to the world. And for young men and women, there can sometimes be a confusion about getting dressed for an interview and not recognizing that there's a difference between getting dressed for a date and getting dressed for a job. You don't go to job interviews dressed for a date. That's the question you ask yourself. And if you're not, you should do it. If you are a woman, you should um, hi uh, uh, not hide. You should not draw attention to those uh, aspects of your physicality that men annoy the hell out of you with every day. If you have wonderful hair, put it back in a ponytail. If you're extremely pretty, wear glasses. And this applies to both sexes. You know, I, was a, I, I didn't always look 128, Peter. When I started this and I was 35, I looked like I was about 15. So when I went on TV, I went and got some uh, clear glasses. I put the glasses on. Made me look older and more intelligent. <laughs> and these kind of tricks can, can work for um, people who suffer from this 
kind of horror at the job interview and beyond. Um, the real predators aren't going to come on strong in the interview. You're going to wait there. But then we have uh, resources like Glassdoor.com, where people can leave commentary about um, uh, their employers. And this commentary is monitored by a staff of about, yeah, I'm thinking 30 or 40 people. Every comment is read before it is allowed to be posted to make sure it's not offensive to any specific person or uh, group of people. All right. And it's a great resource for research on what life inside this company is like. But don't decide not to try for a job at that company because of what you read at Glassdoor. Go there to check out the company after you've been for an interview and it looks like it might be going somewhere. And I'd like to say thank you to Martin Yates, author of Knock Em Dead, The Element Job Search Guide. And while it's not 2018, it's the 30th annual edition. So that's something about Martin's staying power and what he knows. Thank you, Martin Yates. Hey, Peter. God bless. Take care. Have a wonderful day, everybody. Bye. Thank you, Martin. And you're listening to WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. We'll be right back after these messages. And we're back. There's an old saying. It goes back to the 60s. The times they are changing. And it's as relevant today as it was back then. And with changing times, changing strategies are required. And changing strategies are part of what... We're going to talk about this morning with my next guest, academic author Lisa Stolberg, her new book, LGBTQ Social Movements. Good morning, Lisa Stolberg. Good morning, Peter. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Lisa, what's to learn then from the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgendered questioning community in for these changing times? Well, a lot has changed over the years. Um, unfortunately, we've hit a roadblock with that in the last administration, but we can learn a lot since Stonewall in 1969 and since um, the marriage fights in the last decade or so and since the change for uh, cultural inclusion and cultural acceptance through pop culture um, over the last few decades um, through the use of the courts, through the use of the streets, through the use of art um, for social change for this community around gender and sexuality. Well, back in Stonewall days, people took to the streets when they were cranky about something. Yes. Is that still valid today? That is absolutely still valid today. Um, you know, I was a child of the 80s, um, and I always felt that the social movements of the 60s and 70s sort of passed me by. Um, and when I started teaching at NYU during the Bush administration in the early 2000s, um, we were having those same conversations in class. A lot of our students felt that they didn't really know how to make social change. It felt like it wasn't a time of a, of a mass social movement. I think that's changed a bit. Um, Black Lives Matter, I think, has changed a lot. that a lot. Um, we are at a time of a mass social movement, and I think with the responses to the Trump administration, we're seeing that as well. Um, but I think we also see, as was the case in Stonewall, we also see a lot of other um, avenues for change and venues for change, such as cultural spaces, um, such as um, use of the law, but I do think the streets are important, um, and they've always been a part of movements for social change of all kinds. What do you mean by cultural spaces? Well, I think that art um, and cultural spaces such as television and film um, and uh, visual art has always been an important part of social change. I think in the last 
uh, decade or so, we've also seen the use of social media as a really important community builder and a really important part of the way that people who don't have other avenues have been able to use their voice for social change. But I'm also really interested in the pop cultural space. Uh, television, um, for instance, I think has been um, a big part of change in this particular movement, um, as has music um, and other kind of cultural venues, even religious um, venues. All right, let's talk about television then. Yes. Because there's a prime example. Yes. Will and Grace. Will and Grace. Right back from the graveyard. Yep. <laughs> and I think it's pretty good. I think the new season is great. Um, yes. Uh, Pre Vice President Joe Biden, when he um, said that he was for marriage equality in 2012, mentioned that Will and Grace had done more for changing minds around this issue than anything else. Um, and I think it's obviously just one example, but I think a really important mainstream pop cultural example. Basically, to see that people who are different than you are really the same? I think it's a combination of things. I mean, I think that now we're at a time when most people um, say that they know somebody in their lives who is LGB or T, um, and that wasn't true necessarily 30 years ago when the closet was still... Um, was still much stronger than it is now. But I think that um, television is one place where people um, bring characters into their homes, and it's a very intimate space for getting to know um, and getting to love characters that may be different from them. I don't think that's always about um, seeing people as the same. It may also be, be about seeing that people who are different um, have common struggles or just building empathy for difference as well and building empathy for experiences that are different from our own. And I think that television, more so than movies and anything else, I think is just this really intimate place to do that. Do you think Stonewall, though, was the real beginning of this social change movement for LGBTQ people, or did it start earlier? I think it started earlier. I like to, to think of World War II as the starting point, and I've learned a lot from scholars who have studied this period. World War II was the, was the starting point for a lot of our modern social movements, um, and in this particular case, World War II <laughs> brought people into the military from all over the country in small towns, and it was a time when people who were part of the LGBTQ community, especially I would say the L and the G in this case, were able to find each other and really um, learned that they weren't alone and started to build communities through um, their time in the military and then afterwards. And, of course, that became a time of, of a lot of repression as well after World War II and the McCarthy era. era. But I think that was the starting point. Um, and I think Stonewall really um, was a culmination and also a new beginning. It was a huge point of organizational development for the LGBTQ movement, but it didn't start there by any means. Now, though, you're talking about the courts. Yes. a new weapon in this fight. Yes. But courts are dependent on the kindness of judges, and yes. with the current administration, the judiciary is a-changing. It is, and that's a big worry and a big problem. Um, I think for the LGBTQ movement, as with other movements for social change, especially for numerical and um, oppressed minorities, the courts have been a really important vehicle for social change, a really important tool, but they aren't everything. And um, a lot of the, the key decisions for LGBTQ civil rights have been 5-4 decisions at the pr Supreme Court level. And uh, it's, really, it's really precarious right now. And if that doesn't change, or if it goes the other direction, 5-4 for the other side, 
Yes. What's the alternative? I think the alternative is a combination of continuing to make change at the lower court level, and we've seen that with um, Trump attempting to ban transgender people from the military. We see that there have been already a number of court decisions that have not allowed him to do that. So the Supreme Court isn't everything. We can build up to Supreme Court decisions. Ultimately, we do need the Supreme Court to rule on things like the scope of the 14th Amendment and equal protection. Um, But I think we have avenues beyond the courts, and we see that changing public opinion really matters for changing legal opinion. Um, That's been true all the way back to Loving v. Virginia and interracial marriage, um, that law and and hearts and minds go together, um, that we have to have those. But I think we we have to fight for legal change, but we can't rely on the courts, unfortunately, at this moment. But when you have one person arguing for their rights and another person saying, but your argument for your rights violates mine, I'm thinking about the great wedding cake debate. Yes. What do you do? I, um, I think that we need to fight on all fronts in this, and I think that we see um, that this particular administration has gone back to a focus on states' rights. Um, and has gone back to pulling the federal government back from protecting minorities of many kinds. Um, And so all uh, legislative fights from the local level on up are incredibly important right now. Um, At the same time, fighting for uh, private change by making one of the, the important things that happened Um, early on before there was marriage um, equality in any state as many private companies started offering domestic partner benefits and and offering protections for same-sex partners and families. And so there are things that the private sector does and has been doing for decades now that are really important, but we do need policy and legal change. And I think that's part of how politics works is um, these claims to the, the way the state works um, are, are different, and people argue that their rights um, take precedence over others. And I, I think we have to just keep making the argument, and I think we've seen that we can win in the courts and in the court of public opinion. Why did you write the book, Lisa? I've been teaching at New York University for more than 15 years now, and I've taught a version of a social movements class, and... From the beginning, um, my students were always really interested in LGBTQ social change and were interested in talking about gender and sexuality, but really hadn't learned anything in high school about these movements and weren't learning very much in their other college classes about these movements. Um, And there are a lot of incredible resources out there on these social movements, but I hadn't found anything that was just sort of a short, accessible, thematic book. Um, that I could use in my classes that would just introduce these concepts and these activists. And so I wrote this book for my students and students like mine, um, and then for anybody else who's interested in understanding these movements. I think we're at a particular moment where that's especially important politically, um, and so I'm hoping my book will appeal both to students like mine and also just to anybody else interested in learning more. Well, but I could hear parents saying, you want to teach this stuff in high school? Not in my high school. 
Yep, and actually there was just a new study put out that um, by GLAD, an organization that looks at LGBTQ acceptance and cultural change, and they found that I think something like 37% of people surveyed said that they were still uncomfortable with their young people learning about LGBTQ history in schools. Um, and I guess all I can say to that is that I think that this particular movement, like many movements, is about American progress and is about what the state can do to protect all of its um, inhabitants. And so learning about social change of many kinds is about learning about the country and our, the history of our country more broadly and what we stand for. Um, and I also think young people are ahead of us <laughs> in where they are in terms of their identity and, and um, the way they think about their identities and the way they um, treat their friends um, and their classmates. And they have a lot to teach us about acceptance um, around gender and sexual diversity. Because kids, among other things, are still committing suicide because they think they're lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgendered, or queer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think family acceptance there matters a lot, and cultural acceptance matters a lot. There are some studies that show that in states where there was marriage equality, suicide rates went down. And so I think showing that we as a country protect all of our inhabitants um, and that the laws can work for uh, minorities of many kinds is really important for young people to see. How about the AIDS epidemic? Certainly, again, activism has changed from yes. taking to the streets to something else. Yeah. What's the something else we're seeing now? Around AIDS specifically? Yes. Uh, I think that what we've always seen with the AIDS movement is a combination of taking to the streets, taking to the streets and working with the government to provide funding and to provide protection um, around medical developments and around care. Um, and I think those are still some of the things that we're seeing. I think AIDS treatment has changed a lot. Treatment for HIV has changed a lot over the decades. I think we need to think about uh, the, the sort of we need to think about the United States as a world actor um, and the way that we participate um, in the AIDS epidemic is, um, is, it's important to think about that as something that's worldwide and that we have a role to play as a country um, in the worldwide epidemic. I think in this country, um, the affordability of treatment is really important and that gets us to a broader debate around health care and providing health care for, for all Americans. Um, I don't think we're seeing quite as much taking to the, tr taking to the streets um, as we did in the 80s and early 90s. Um, but I think the fight still goes on, especially around um, uh, access to treatment. And if I recall my newscasts recently, um, the federal government's advisory commission on yes. AIDS all decided enough is enough, we're done. Uh, I think <laughs> my understanding is that uh, the, the federal commission received FedEx letters indicating that their services were no longer needed mm -hmm. by the Trump administration. Yes. I'm not sure where that's going next, but yes, um, we see in this administration a real rollback roll um, with respect to LGBTQ rights and equality and with respect to uh, HIV and AIDS. Goodness. Yep. What, are you seeing, what, do you, what do we need to do? 
Well, I think we can work on a lot of different fronts. I think, um, from my perspective, uh, participating in electoral politics is very important, um, and voting is very important for for these issues and for many others. And then I do think that we can work on the cultural front in many ways. Changing hearts and minds has always been really important to any uh, minority group, and this one in particular. Um, we, uh, unlike with other forms of inequality um, with LGBTQ equality. Most family members have LGBTQ relatives, um, coworkers, and friends. And so this is something that hits very close to home. Um, and so we can make cultural changes um, even when we're in a period of retrenchment in terms of law and policy. And I'd like to say thank you to Lisa Stolberg. Lisa, do you have a website? I do. Um, it's on my NYU bio page, um, and the book will be out in the next week or two. And thank you very much for talking. My pleasure. The book, LGBTQ Social Movements by Lisa Stolberg. It's worth a look. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks. And I'd like to say thank you as well this morning to Phil Jackson, this morning's producer, and Ann Tideman-Solomon, my associate producer and dear wife. Couldn't do the show without either one of you. I want to say Go, birds. You're going to do it. Bring home the trophy. I'm going to be out there helping to celebrate as well when it happens. Stay tuned for Sports Talk with Sunny Hill. Always interesting and provocative discussion in the living room. Your opinions, Sunny's reactions. I know I'll be listening. Nothing left to say, but see you soon.